Well, good morning. So you're probably wondering a little bit why this is a sermon on the cornerstone and how, why this is called Foundations, because 1 Corinthians is not really a foundational letter. It's Paul dealing with a whole bunch of issues in the church in Corinth, and it's not like Romans. If you're really going to do a, church on, or a sermon series on foundations, you might pick something like Romans, where Paul is sort of laying out the precepts and the doctrines of the faith in a very orderly manner. And, uh, but what I want to get at and why we're talking about Christ as a cornerstone today, you'll see in the, in the two verses that we do, but why I'm calling this a sermon or a series on foundations is because of the application of the foundations to the church in Corinth. It's not so much that Paul is teaching foundational truths in sort of a doctrinal sense or in sort of great cosmic profound truths about God in 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. It's that Paul is applying the lessons that the church in Corinth needs to learn on the foundations of the doctrines and the precepts and the truths that we find in Scripture. And so it's more of an application of the foundation, which is why we call this, or I'm calling this series Foundations and why we're talking about the cornerstone. And last week, just as a quick review, we talked about the Apostle Paul and why listen to him. And we talked about the fact that he was um, taught by the Spirit, that God intercepted his life, that Jesus, uh, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, that he uh, was called specifically as an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, that the foundation of the church is laid on the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone, that his truths Uh, The wisdom that he was imparting in these letters that he wrote were called Scripture. They're the wisdom of God that was promised by Jesus uh, in John 14 when he's talking to his disciples and he says, I have to go and there's much more that I would teach you, but I'm going to send another helper, uh, a paraclete, and uh, the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you these things. And then in these letters from Paul, we have these truths that Jesus promised he would teach to his church after he was gone. And so that was sort of a review of the Apostle Paul and why we listen to him and why we have these letters from Paul. And then this morning, what I want to talk about a little bit is just do a quick introduction uh, to to Corinth, the city and the church, and and what Paul is going into as we go into this study. What is the reality uh, of Corinth and the city and uh, what Paul encounters there and and what he has to deal with years later uh, after the church has been founded? So let's just open up in a word of prayer before we get into that introduction. Father God, I give you uh, just praise this morning for your goodness to us, for your mercy, that you have not left us alone and abandoned, uh, but you have left us with your scripture, with your wisdom and with your truth, and that you have uh, surrounded us uh, with the apostles and with disciples and with faithful teachers and uh, above all your scripture that has come down to us faithfully. And so, Lord, we look into it now uh, to learn and to apply this wisdom to our own church and to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> bear with me if my voice goes a little bit. I'm struggling with a cold today. And uh, fisherman's friend and the Holy Spirit will get me through it. Um, <coughs> if I cough, sorry about that on the recording too. Um, so first of all, just Corinth the city. Uh, some of you may know or, or not know about the city of Corinth. And uh, it's located in the Mediterranean and... Uh, it's on the uh, isthmus. There's a, a map 
And there's an isthmus, and uh, you can't see it there. If you hit it, it blows up there. There's Greece. It's at the bottom of Greece. You blow it up. You see it's the south end of Greece there. It's almost an island, except for this little four-mile-wide isthmus. Um, there's another big word for you today. Now you've had two. <laughs> uh, that peninsula of land is four miles wide, and Corinth sort of sat right there at the narrowest point. And so all the traffic going north or south in Greece had to go through Corinth. And not only all the foot traffic going north or south in Greece, but all the shipping and all the boat traffic going east and west went through Corinth as well because it was very dangerous to go the 200-mile trip down around the southern Cape. And so what they did is if it was large ships, they took the cargo off and hauled it the four miles across and put it on a different ship. If it was a smaller ship, they actually lifted the whole boat out of the water and put it on rollers and rolled it the four miles across and dropped it in the water on the other side. And so... One way or the other, you were going to go through Corinth. It was uh, a very large city at its height. Um, It was uh, up to 600,000 people, and it was sort of a melting pot of urban life, as you can imagine, in the Mediterranean. And so it was the place you could go for everything. You could get spices from Babylon. You could get deals on ivory. You could get carpets from Turkey. uh, You know, you could get silks from the east. Basically, it was loud. It was dirty. It was metropolitan. It was every nationality and culture and religion and philosophy and everything you could imagine there. And the highlight of the city was the Temple of Aphrodite, which sat at the highest point. And uh, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and it's a port city with a lot of sailors. And so you can imagine what the pervading culture of Corinth was. Uh, This was everything you could imagine of uh, just a huge metropolis in the Mediterranean in the first century. So Paul was not walking into a sleepy little town, okay? This isn't the church of Halliburton in Corinth. (laughs) This is a big metropolis, but it had all the same problems, and churches are not unique to the problems that Corinth has, and we're not uh, sheltered from the same problems that Corinth had. All the different center of idea, the center of philosophies, the cultures, the people, the religions, everything intersected through Corinth. And... uh, As I said, uh, there was uh, temple worship and uh, just every manner of activity that you can imagine. And in fact, the the name of the city actually became a verb. To Corinthianize meant to commit adultery. Uh, To be a Corinthian was to be immoral. So if anybody can think of a city, maybe in North America, that has almost become a verb, (laughs) um, something like Vegas, right? So that's Corinth, okay? You can put Corinth and, and Vegas basically in the same category, that as soon as you hear the name of the city, you immediately know what it is that the person is talking about. And that was literally uh, a Greek verb to Corinthianize, uh, to basically uh, cheat on your wife was to Corinthianize. And so this is the city that, that Paul plants his church in, and we see the planting of that church, actually. Uh, Luke records it for us in the book of Acts in chapter 18. So that's the city of Corinth. Now, what about the church that he plants? It's about 49 AD. Paul is planting the church here in Corinth in in, uh, Acts 18, 1 to 18, and it talks about Paul there meeting uh, Aquila, who is uh, and and Priscilla, his wife, and they are from Rome. And there was an edict in Rome. We know this historically that this this edict went out from Rome uh, in uh, 49 AD. Uh, 48, 49 A.D., that uh, all the everybody was to leave, all the Jews, Christian Jews especially, were to leave Rome. And so they got kicked out. They found their way to Corinth. Paul finds his way to Corinth. He understands 
Paul, in his wisdom, thinking about this as a missionary, realizes if I can plant the gospel in Corinth, everything going north and south, everything going east and west, all these different cultures, all these different religions, all these different peoples from all over the world, going through Corinth, if I can plant the gospel in Corinth, wow, that would be great. The seeds of the gospel could just spread out from this city. And so he runs into Aquila and Priscilla, and he and, uh, works as a tent maker there for a few months, and uh, he ends up staying a year and a half. He ends up staying 18 months founding the church in Corinth in this city of 600,000 people and this one little movement of the gospel in the city of Corinth. And he teaches in the synagogue uh, on Sabbaths, and eventually they move the house to, to, the, house of, uh, to the house of justice, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then Sosthenes joins them, and you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff there in, in 18 that you can read up on the founding of this church. Now, after he leaves Corinth, though, what we get now is we get um, about a letter in 1 Corinthians written by Paul, written about eight or nine years later. And so it was in his second missionary journey that he planted the church in Corinth, and now on his third missionary journey, he's in Ephesus, and he is writing back to the church in Corinth. He planted it eight or nine years ago. It's now 57, 58, maybe 59 A.D., and he has word of how the church is going, how it's fared in this environment, how the people managed with what was planted initially and where it is now with the pressure of that city upon them. And so the letter that you get is sort of what you would expect of a church with that cultural pressure on it. And in Paul's absence, the church had really begun to struggle. And if there was ever going to be a church that was struggling with the pressure of an immoral society, you can imagine it was Corinth, right? You can imagine a church today in Vegas, right? You can Im- on the Strip, you know, and there are churches in Vegas on the Strip, and the pressure that they face in the reality of what they're dealing with, the constant blatant pressure of an immoral society. And it had essentially gotten to the point where it was chaos in Corinth. They had a small group ministry. They were meeting in each other's homes. They had different groups, but they were following people. And they were making claims about, oh, I follow this guy, or I follow that person, and I'm in this group, and I'm in this group. And they're, you know, so they had a, a small group ministry, but it was actually dividing the church. You know, and snobbery was part of the church, right? At fellowship meals, you know, people didn't wait for people, and people didn't sit or talk or eat with certain people based on who they were or what wealth they had. Church discipline was almost non-existent. People behaved as they pleased, and there was nothing ever said about it or done about it, the way people lived together or did things and how they treated each other. It was unruly. It was a church that had sort of a democracy, and they challenged all forms of authority. There was no humility or consideration of each other to the point that they started to actually drag each other into court. And so they, you had Christians going to court before the magistrates in the city, Christian against Christian, in, in the public courts from the same church, and the, and the community was looking at this saying, I thought you guys were all about love. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the whole point of the church was you loved each other. Why, why are you fighting each other at the magistrates in the public square in Corinth? You know, why are you, going, why are you suing each other? And so, and, the, and it was a church... <coughs> excuse me, that was fascinated by the spectacular and the flamboyant gifts, you know, these great orators or people with these sort of spectacular, you know, almost uh, just a f- sort of f- incredible uh, uh, 
presentations of their spirituality, and they had almost forgotten in the, in the face of all that sort of flamboyance and that sort of excite, excitement and enthusiasm, they'd forgotten the importance of sort of the day-to-day routine of the acts of love and what love was and how love had to take priority over these sort of extravagant, flamboyant things. So it was basically a church that you see as Paul addresses all of these different issues. It was a church that was in confusion. It was a, a church that was in chaos. I mean, what a church, the church at Corinth, right? I mean, it's the perfect church to leave <laughs> if you were there, right? It's the perfect church to get out of. It's the perfect church to find fault with. It's the perfect church to decide isn't good enough for you. It's the perfect church because it didn't have perfect leadership, and it didn't have perfect people, and it didn't have a perfect governance system, and it didn't have a perfect ministry strategy. It was an imperfect church. What a great church to leave. You'd think that would be the attitude. But before we shake our finger at Corinth, we have to consider ourselves, right? We have to consider what the people at Corinth were like. And if you can't imagine, you can just sort of look around. You can look a couple rows ahead or a couple rows behind. And if you think the problem is on the other side of the church, you can just look at yourself. Because we're all in the same church of Corinth. We're in a church that has the pressures of an immoral society on it. We're in a church with imperfect leadership. We're in a church with an imperfect strategy. We're in a church with imperfect governance. We're in a church filled with imperfect people facing all the same problems that Corinth has. And so Paul is not dealing with issues unique to Corinth or the first century. The letter of 1 Corinthians is a a letter to every church. And as an aside, it's interesting how Paul greets this church. I mean, if you knew this church and had even planted it and knew those people and had gone away for a while and you saw all the mess that was going on and the stuff that was happening in Corinth, would you greet them the way that Paul does there in verse 4? He says, I always give thanks. I always give thanks to God for you. That's Paul's greeting to this messed up church in Corinth. He's so thankful for that church. As messed up as it is, that it's there and it's in Corinth and they're trying really hard to follow after God. So what was the problem? The problem was Corinth was an unstable church. It was a wobbly faith going on. There was compromised moral integrity. And we see all those things sort of in the description that I painted of Corinth and we'll see later on in the letter. And so that's the problem. So what's the answer? Where does Paul go? It's really simple. And why the cornerstone is here. Paul starts. What does he want them to know? He wants to know that the cornerstone is Jesus and his gospel. And keep returning to it every day. And in addressing each of these individual situations, Paul will keep going back to the foundations of the gospel to correct them. That in every situation, the answer to an unshakable church and a solid foundation to build your faith and life on is Jesus and the gospel. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, "...to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sacrificed in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." There's four key points. I'm going to mainly stick on the fourth one. The first thing from this, as how Paul starts the letter, is that he starts out by saying the church is God's. It's not Paul's. It's not the elders. It's not the people that they name later on in 1 Corinthians. It's not Apollos's. It's not these other guys. It's not the congregations. The church is God's. It's the church of God that is in Corinth. It's God's church. 
nobody else's. You can say so-and-so has a church across town or so-and-so has a church in, you know, um, in Chicago or somebody has a church in whatever. It's not their church. It's God's church. There's people that work in God's church, but it's God's church first and foremost. And so Paul starts there. It's the church of God that happens to be in Corinth. And it's made up of called saints. The second point is, is that the people that are in the church are called to be there. That it's God's church and he drew the people to be there. Paul, in the first verse, says that he is called as an apostle. And he says here that the members are called to be in the church. That they were called to be saints together by Jesus Christ. We're all here for the same reason. Paul knows that he never would have had the life that he had as an apostle had God not intercepted his life and Jesus called him on the road of Damascus to Damascus to be the apostle Paul and to have this ministry. And Paul knows that nobody would be sitting in the church in Corinth except that Jesus intersected their life as well and called them to be a part of that church. And so it's God's church and everybody who's there is there because God called them there. The third thing is that it's one part of a larger church He says, all those in every place that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so the church is part of something bigger, something greater. As much attention or as much, you know, navel-gazing as the church of Corinth was involved in thinking about their problems and thinking about the stuff they had to sort out and the problem with that family over there and these people are eating meat and they shouldn't be eating that meat and blah, 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 blah. Paul is reminding them, your part... You know, Corinth may be a big city. You may think you have a big church, this mega church in Corinth, but you're part of a church of God that is global. You're, char- you're part of the whole church of God. You're just part of this huge testimony of people that are all in the same place together, all working together for the same thing, which is the glory of Jesus Christ and the spread of his gospel. And so he reminds them that it's not just the church in Corinth, but they are part of the saints together with all those who in every place. And what is it that defines them? How does Paul define the church? All those in every place who baptize people? No. All those in every place who have elders instead of deacons? No. All those in every place who uh, are a brethren assembly? No. All those in every place that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church. There's Paul's description of the church. It's everybody, everywhere who calls on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the distinguishing feature. That's what makes it a church, the calling on Jesus. It's not the governance. It's not the spiritual gifts that are present or not present. It's not the type of music. It's not the people who worship this way or the people that baptize adults or baptize children or even baptize at all. It's not the defining characteristic of the church. The defining characteristic of the church is that the people call on Jesus. And what all this does, at the very beginning of this letter, is it puts Jesus exactly where Paul wants Jesus to be. At the center, the deliberate focus of everything, the cornerstone. Paul is writing to a church that's breaking up over a dozen different secondary issues. You know, who should stay married? Who shouldn't be married? Should we get married? What about meat at this altar? What about meat at that altar? What about legal issues, you know? Like all these, you know, what about spiritual gifts? This person talks in tongues. This person, like all these different issues. And Paul says, look, Jesus is the point. Jesus is the foundation of the church. The gospel is what calls us together to be brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So before you break up your marriages and before you sue each other in court and before you get in squabbles over who is eating what and who has better spiritual gifts or worse spiritual gifts, remember that God called you, Jesus saved you, you're the church. Jesus is the foundation. And there's lots of other stones that are going to be laid. Paul lays lots of doctrinal foundations, but Paul wants this first stone to be in the right place. He wants Corinth to square itself to this reality, that they're a church because Jesus is at the center. And that's where Paul had originally started building the church nine years earlier. If you go back and you read that account of Acts 18, there's one thing I want to pull out of there. He had been working as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla and, uh, you know, preaching the gospel on the Sabbath and then working during the week, but that's not really what he wanted to do. But then finally, Silas and Timothy comes along. It says there in Acts verse t- Acts 18 verse 5 and when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia it says Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that was Christ Jesus and then he says he became wholly absorbed when they came with proclaiming the gospel so Paul could give up his tent making and he could spend seven days a week doing nothing but proclaiming the gospel for another year at least a year probably longer wholly absorbed with proclaiming the gospel That was the foundation that Paul was building the church of Corinth on. That was what it was planted on, the gospel. And it's the perfect antidote for a church that had been absorbed in a lot of other stuff, absorbed in relationships with each other, absorbed on debates on doctrine, absorbed in factions, absorbed in heresies. They were absorbed in a whole bunch of other stuff. And they've forgotten where they had started eight or nine years earlier, that Paul had preached to them for a year and a half, wholly absorbed with proclaiming the gospel. And then Paul puts more emphasis on this later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just a few paragraphs later, he hammers this point again. He says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Paul is focused upon a single point. It's the sun that our solar system revolves around, the gospel of Jesus. Paul resolved to know nothing in Corinth except Christ and him crucified. So why am I getting all these accounts of all this other stuff? Because what I taught you was Jesus and the gospel. And what I'm hearing is a lot of secondary and third stuff and just stuff that is way out of line, way out of whack. You, you need to be aligned to this cornerstone. You have to be square to this. You have to be mortared to it. Christ and the gospel and what he did. Don't be distracted by other things. Paul is tapping into the foundation laid by God that everything would be about Jesus. It's what the church at Corinth needed to hear then. It's what the church needed to hear at the Reformation. It's what Luther and all the great reformers brought back to the forefront, that everything is centered on Christ. It's what the church needs now and the new movement of the of the young, restless, and reform that they talk about. When, when we get distracted by other things, return to the cornerstone, return to the foundation of Jesus and the gospel. I wouldn't be surprised that when Paul was preaching in Corinth, he literally quoted Peter's first great sermon to the Jews in, in Jerusalem. When, he, when Peter was in Jerusalem, right after the ascension, you remember he gives that great sermon where he basically blames them for killing Jesus. <laughs> Good intro. Uh, And then he says, this Jesus, this is Peter in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul basically quoted that in Corinth many times when he was preaching. I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. 
This is the touchstone that Paul keeps returning to, and it's going to be the touchstone that he's going to use to guide the church of Corinth out of their problems. It's the touchstone that any church, any Christian life can use to guide yourself out of your problems when you're distracted by secondary and tertiary things. The gospel of Jesus is proclaimed from Genesis on through to Revelation. It's God's plan that the gospel and the person of Jesus would be the center of everything. In Genesis, we're told that the seed of Eve would eventually crush the head of the serpent. And then through the history of Israel, we have this picture of the redemption of Israel, the nation from Egypt to enter into the promised land. And then Ruth, which we just looked at for four Sundays, a penniless foreigner who's rescued by a redeemer. And then through the Psalms, a Messiah that must die. And then through the prophets, a coming day of the Lord and a rebellious people who are drawn back to God. And God says, you who were not my people, I call my people again. And then through the realities of Jesus in the gospel, and then through the apostolic teaching of Paul and the other apostles, Christ is the cornerstone of everything. You cannot open up a book of the Bible and not see that Christ is at the center of it all. And so that's why we open up 1 Corinthians, and we look at those first two verses, and we see that Paul wants them to center on this fact. Don't lose sight of the fact that all who call on Christ are the people who make up the church, and Christ is the center of all things. Later on in Colossians, he eventually says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 1.17. So I ask the question, how are we making Jesus preeminent in everything that we do? in all the ways that we act, in all the things that we say, in all of our relationships, in all of our ministries, in our interaction with the community, in our interaction with each other. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. The problem of shaky faith, the problem of messed up doctrine, the problem of a wobbly church, disunity, The antidote that Paul is putting forward here is Jesus and the gospel that he be made preeminent. And so we're good to ask that question of ourselves. He's the foundation of history, of redemption, of salvation, of the church. Jesus is the plumb line. He's the square edge. He's the level place. He's the brass survey marker. Whatever whatever analogy you want to use, you come back to Christ and the gospel. Jesus even defined the church built upon himself. You know, in Matthew 16, really quickly, you remember that time when Jesus is coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking his disciples, and he's saying, you know, who do people say that I am? I've been doing ministry now for a little while. What's the word on the street? Who am I? What do people say? And, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist. Should be a trick. He wasn't even dead yet. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, and he said, yeah, but who do you say I am? You guys have hung out with me the closest. Who do you say that I am? And he says, it's Simon Peter who speaks up, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Excuse me. And Jesus answered him, and it's interesting his answer. Some of you all remember it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is before he's called Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is it that he's building this on? Is it Peter? It's Peter, sort of. It's the truth that he's the Messiah. It's the truth that Peter saw that Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock that the church is built on. So God says it. Paul says it. Peter said it. Jesus said it. He's the rock. He's the cornerstone. He is where we build our church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church through history. Jesus is the cornerstone here at Lakeside. Apparently, it used to be called First Baptist. (laughs) This is our cornerstone from the first church. It's very heavy. Graham and I and four other guys moved it this morning. (laughs) We were talking actually earlier, just before the service, um, some people who had seen on TV or some people had been to Israel and seen the, the temple foundation. And when you see the temple mount there, you know, the picture, the classic picture, and it's not the temple now, it's a um, mosque <laughs> on the foundation. But that huge wall, right, and all those bricks and everything, that's just the foundation, by the way. That was not the temple. That was just the base of the temple mount. But those foundation stones that are there, uh, when, we're, when you're there and, and you get to walk up to the Wailing Wall and see them, and you can go down into some of the tunnels that are along beside it, they're the size of a bus. They're ma- like, you see this, and it's like us, and you're like, oh, wow, how big or heavy this thing is. The foundation stones are the size of that wall over there. They're massive. They're unbelievably huge. And so when, when Jesus is using this analogy and when Paul is saying that he's the cornerstone the minds of the people that he's talking to would immediately go to the wonder of their world, which was the temple at Jerusalem, and they would think of those stones. You know, we think this is impressive, 300 pounds, whatever. <laughs> tons, 300 tons. A cornerstone that the entire mountain was built upon. That's what they would think of. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church through history. He's the, church, the cornerstone of the church globally. He's the cornerstone of the church here at Lakeside. And Paul's plan is really simple. Major on the majors and let everything else take its place from there. Let every other stone find its place based on the cornerstone. And don't let any other little stone take the place of the cornerstone or everything will start getting built crooked. And so Paul starts his letter at the beginning. Paul starts his letter by reminding the people who is at the center, that the church is based on those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, and that's it, that is the center. If Jesus didn't invade the lives of these church people, there would be no church. The church is God's and it exists because of Jesus. And all the other foundation stones don't matter if they're not lined up with that cornerstone. So Paul knows the best way for Corinth to rebuild itself is to start at that cornerstone. And it's true in your life and it's true of us as well. We get distracted by these secondary and tertiary issues and and we wonder where we build our life. We build it on the gospel and on Jesus Christ. The amazing truth about the gospel of Jesus is that the gospel is not something that we encounter once in our life and then leave behind as if it's something we did when we were kids or it's something we did years ago. It's like, oh yeah, I know the gospel. You know, I understand that Jesus lived the perfect life and he died the perfect death as a sacrifice and that he was raised by the Father as evidence of the truth of the promise that he has carried our sins into the grave and buried them with him and that they're no longer ours to bear. I get the gospel. I, I did that. But, you know, that was 20 years ago. That was five years ago. What does it have to do with today? The truth is, is that the gospel isn't something that you encounter once in your life and you leave it behind. The gospel underpins everything in our Christian life. 
The gospel is the foundation that we build on and preach to ourselves every single day. He's saying the same thing. Paul is teaching this truth to the church in Corinth, but he says it this way in Colossians when he's writing there. He says, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Just as you received Christ Jesus. How did we receive Christ Jesus? Through the gospel. And so how do we continue to live our lives in Him? Through the gospel. We don't leave it behind. We continue to preach it to ourselves. We continue to rehearse it. We continue to see it expressed in our relationships. The act of Jesus towards us and his gospel informs everything that we do as a people and everything we do as a church. This is the point. This is the lesson. This is the the end. (laughs) Okay, so this is where we got to listen. This is where we got to listen to the strategy that Paul took in founding the church at Corinth and the strategy that Paul takes as he writes this letter. When we realize that the gospel pervades everything, when we realize that when we're sinners saved only by God's mercy, we become more patient with other sinners. When we realize that we have been forgiven an enormous debt, we become more forgiving. The better we understand and appreciate the grace shown to us, the more gracious we become towards others. We see the need for forgiveness in ourselves and in others. When we consider the debt that Jesus paid, we're able to bear a greater debt ourselves. When our eyes are open to the goodness of the law and that the way of Jesus is right and just and merciful, then we become more right and just and merciful to line up our lives with his. Paul, the calling of Jesus in his life and the reality of the gospel informed everything Paul taught. It informed how he looked at sinning people. Okay, Paul looked at the church at Corinth through the lens of the gospel. We have to look at other people through the lens of the gospel. It informed how he looked at the people in the city of Corinth when he first arrived. When Paul first arrived, did he say, oh, what a disgusting cesspool. No place for the gospel here. I'm not going to tarnish Jesus with this city. No. He looked at Corinth through the eyes of the gospel of people in need. It informed how he viewed the church in Corinth, his brothers and sisters in Christ. It informed how he spoke and wrote to them. Everything went through the filter of the gospel. The gospel and the person of Jesus informs everything in our lives and our relationships with each other. It informs our identity and who we are. It informs our unity and how we are to live together. It informs our doctrine. It informs our practice as a church. It informs our interaction with our culture and our priorities and our family life. The lessons of the gospel pervade everything. It's the cornerstone, the foundation, the plumb line, the level that our life is built on. And underneath everything, Paul is teaching the church in Corinth to rest on this. He's lifting and and relaying their crooked stones and their twisted behavior so that it aligns with Christ. And so the church of God is built only as well as its members align to the cornerstone of Christ. So that's the message that Paul starts this letter to Corinth with. By simply reminding them of who they are in Christ and that Christ is at the center of everything. And that as Christians, we learn that if we want our practice and our doctrines and our relationships and our ministries and our governance and all the things that go on here at the church, we have to put it through the same lens of the gospel. The gospel of grace and mercy and freedom and redemption and love. I finish with Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, which was talking about the cornerstone that was mentioned earlier. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what Paul wanted for the church in Corinth. That's what this Paul wants for the church at Lakeside. (laughs) To have this as our cornerstone. To have everything that we do, every relationship that we have, every ministry that we do, every doctrine we hold, every practice we practice, to go through the filter of the gospel so that we don't get our stones crooked. And if anywhere in our life our stones are crooked right now, we can come back and line them up with this, with Jesus Christ and what he did. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you again for the Apostle Paul. Thank you that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he laid down his life to put himself there, that he humbled himself, gave himself up, was beaten, mocked, ridiculed, disbelieved, hung on a cross, thrown into a grave, but then rose victorious. Father, that we have faith that we are not alone, that you have not abandoned us, that you have instead gone far beyond and rescued us, saved us from ourselves. So, Father, give us faith and give us trust in you. And remind us of it every single day, not just today. That every word that crosses over our lips, every thought that we have, everything needs to go through the filter of the gospel. It transformed us spiritually, Lord. We pray that it would transform us personally as individuals and transform us as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.